This is Liquid Gold. All right, where the apples are pressed and the art forms are old, welcome back to Liquid Gold right here on the We Own This Town podcast network, weownthistown.net. It's our cider season finale, part two. Pretty cool. Today we get to go a totally different direction from our episode last week where we talked to cider legend Diane Flint of Foggy Ridge Ciders, who is no longer making cider, but still farming the orchard and getting out her amazing apples to cideries all over Virginia and uh, some cideries in the Northeast. Today we talked to Chris Haston of C. Haston Ciders, who are just kind of getting going, which is cool. We go from Diane, who's been doing it for a really long time and is starting to scale back to a brand new cider maker who is just starting to scale up and thinking about planting more uh, apple trees. So we get into that later and we hear about his process of fermentation, of uh, racking and all those things and about some of the fascinating trees as well as uh, some peri, pear cider. We talk a little bit about that as well as what you're going to hear in just a little bit here, an interview with our pairing correspondent, our wine correspondent, our cocktail crusher correspondent, Miss Jessica Backus from Charleston, South Carolina, down there, the beverage director at Delaney Oyster House, one of our favorite places. Kenneth and I had some epic meals there back in February. So always great to talk to her. We get into Amer Pecan, the mysterious French bitter, and it's uh, place in and its use in cider cocktails, uh, kind of an apples and oranges story, which is kind of cool. Um, Americon being an orange liqueur, and uh, we also talk about Pippin Gold, Diane Flint's um, incredibly forward-thinking and amazing kind of dessert wine. Jess's love for that. We talk about pairing cider with everything from barbecue to pork rinds to olives and charcuterie we talk about how cider has some characteristics especially european cider which we talk a lot about french and especially spanish styles because jess traveled in uh, some of the best regions for cider in spain we talk about how a lot of those ciders have characteristics of wine that one would age and hold on to and wine that is uh, in the price range of 150 dollars. a lot of those same tasting notes those mildly funky tasty tasting notes you can get from incredible Spanish cider. So we get into that as well as some California style sangria. So lots of stuff with Jess and then a really cool interview with Chris who is just starting out his his cider and Perry operation. And what Perry is again, old world pear cider. And pears have a different acid than apples and thus make a totally different product. They have sorbitol, which is non-fermentable. We get into that. Some fun stuff there. I do want to mention a cider that Chris mentions which might just blow right by you. But I want to mention this just in case anyone wants to track it down. It's a legendary French pear cider from Brittany, France, and it is Domaine Johanna Session. So Johanna Session cider from Brittany. It's uh, generally considered the gold standard for pear cider. So if you're interested in that, seek that out. Really cool stuff. My name's Mike Wolf with you here today. My partner, Kenneth Dedman, along later for the ride and his booze news. The final booze news of season two is a doozy. He talks about being traumatized, bobbing for apples, and some science behind bobbing for apples. Some possible titles for Kenneth's memoirs. That's fun. 
We talk about rapidly aging spirits. There's another company that has come up that is trying to uh, close that gap. We talk about the darkest news story about wine ever filed by Mr. Kenneth Dedman. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, we've got a fake commercial for Glenn Danzig Blood Sausage. So we're trying to bring out all the stops today right here on the Cider Season Finale. Again, find us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. Email us liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. And we've even got an apple cider poem from Mr. Kenneth Dedman today. All right, before we get into all this amazing content today, I do want to mention, because we haven't really covered hot cider, warm cider, it's getting to be that time. It's going to be a little bit colder this weekend in Middle Tennessee, and I've got a really cool old school traditional thing that just popped out of a cookbook, and uh, someone showed it to me last year, and I was doing an event, a very secretive exclusive event in a secret location where I was just making cider over a fire. It was really cool. And the tradition of this drink was called Mary Brew. So let me tell you a little bit about Mary Brew and how you can make it at home. Not difficult, really. So Mary Brew is just a really nice, warm cider drink that you can cook over a fire if you want to, if you want to get super rustic. But basically, and this is a recipe that goes back to Belle Ledford. I don't have the name of the cookbook. Um, so I'm sorry about that, but I did write down this recipe. I kind of changed it a little bit. Basically, Mary Brew is half cup firmly packed brown sugar, two sticks of cinnamon, one tablespoon whole cloves, half teaspoon whole allspice, one cup of water, two quarts of apple juice, so a lot of apple juice, one lemon thinly sliced, one orange thinly sliced. You combine sugar, spices, and water in a small saucepan. You bring that to a boil. You reduce that down to a simmer, and you cover it and uh, cook that for about 10 minutes. You combine that with the apple juice, and you serve warm with the lemon and orange slices. And then what I ended up doing, cooking that over a fire, I added some lovely herbs, as I want to do. So I added some lemon thyme, and I had some rosemary, added that in. And then to make this a boozy concoction, what I added to get like a caramel apple taste profile, I went with Laird's apple brandy, which you know we love on the show. There's many different uses for it, especially this time of year. Nothing really tastes like fall, like the Laird's. But uh, And then I also added some uh, Broadbent Rainwater Madeira. And you could experiment with different Madeiras if you have them, but the Madeira combined with the apple brandy and then this Mary Brew, this warm hot apple cider cooked over a fire. It was phenomenal. It was really, really good. And so experiment with that. And then what you can do is uh, you could buy some funky apples from the farmer's market or try to find an orchard that's got some uh, some different varieties. Try to find something that's got some tannin to it. Juice those apples. You'll be amazed at how good you can make and how simple it can be to make a really beautiful warm apple cider. All right, as always, I got to throw a shout out to Tennessee Action for Hospitality and congrats to them. They were recognized in the best of Nashville scene as one of the better, uh, the best for philanthropic restaurant relief. And they've been doing a lot. I did the book, ebook, Lost Spring, How We Cocktailed Through Crisis. Check that out on Amazon. There is a link to that at weownthistown.net. And there's a link on my bio on Instagram at MikeWolf underscore Garden to Glass. You can also search on Amazon for that. And a portion of the proceeds 
We'll be going to Tennessee Action for Hospitality, helping out our comrades in the industry who have been affected by this global pandemic. So please check that out. There's all these amazing recipes, over 50 recipes, and then all these beautiful thoughts about all of a sudden having to stay home for a couple months and being away from your families, being away from your service industry family. And uh, just what it was like for people to slow down and look inward and uh, what helped get people through the books, the movies, the music. And there's also a playlist on Spotify for Lost Spring that is called Disintegration. There's a link for the playlist on We Own This Town. So thanks everybody who has checked out the ebook and uh, sent some thoughts our way. We really appreciate it and continue to check that out and spread the word for us because it's all for a really good cause. All right, we're going to turn things over to the interview with Jessica Backus from Delaney Oyster House. We'll have Chris Haston later, and then we'll follow things up with Mr. Kenneth Dedman, Gone Burgundy himself, the scion of Booze News. All right, it is my distinct pleasure and my honor to get back on the line. Our pairing consultant, our low, low country... (laughs) <laughs> cocktail crusher, Miss Jessica Backus from Delaney Oyster House. How are you, Jess? Oh, so great. Couldn't be better. Low, 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 low. Living low. It's so great happy. to have you back. Yeah. I love those <laughs> those pictures from your jaunt today. They were they were great. You were checking out some uh some new coves. New nature. Yeah. Mm. It's amazing. The waterways here are just magical. It's incredible. So we have bonded over the years over uh, many things drinkable, but um, both of us are loving that that drinking French book. What's so cool about it is it's a lot of the style of drinks that we were making together at Husk, which pair with food so well, which can be light, which can be that aperitif style. And uh, but one thing, this is a cider, the cider season finale, part two. So great to have you along for Cider Talk, because I know that you know a lot about cider, you love cider, you use it in cocktails, you use it for pairings. We've got a lot to get into, but I think it's first, since you're going to be joining us for season three here on Liquid Gold, you're going to be our uh, our pairing correspondent, and uh, we're going to be checking in with you. We're going to talk Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Cocktail, and Amer Pecan. We're going to de- deep dive on that coming up in season three, so I look forward to that. But let's talk about what they talk about in drinking French, where you can actually use Amer Pecan, which is a French bitter, an orange heavy um, French bitter, like a French Amaro, where they use a little bit with cider. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Delicious. Oh, so good. Yeah. So what do you love about Amer Pecan? And then let's just tell our listeners now, since they don't make Amer Pecan anymore, your, your replacement for Amer Pecan now yeah. is the Beagle Sheena Sheena available here in the U.S. And then uh, Golden Moon Distillery in Golden, yeah. Colorado. They make a really totally. good one. And so then, good. Yeah. yeah, let's talk a little bit with uh, Amer Pecan and cider. Um, what do you love about that drink? And maybe throw yeah. out a little recipe of how you'd make it. Yeah, so uh, Amer Pecan not available in the U.S. So really, um, since I even came about understanding anything about booze you really had things that were calling for substitutions in modern cocktail books because you would have really cool old cocktail recipes like the brooklyn and it would call for a pecan and that just wasn't available you know and so huge huge props to 
the Tempest Fugit Company and to Golden Moon for really bringing back a lot of classic spirits that weren't available for a very long time until the very recent resurgence of, of really good cocktail ingredients. You know what I mean? Totally. The gold, the golden moon Americana I'm super impressed with, but that's pretty hard to come by. And obviously, cause you can't find Americana in, in America. Um, the first discovery I made was Chiocharo, which is, um, oh, yes. one of my favorite introductory Amaro options to share with people so whenever you have someone at the bar and they've never had a morrow before and you do not want to experience their fernet face um <laughs> just until they've at least gotten to know you a little bit you know right chiocharo is an amazing option because it's a really good introduction not only to a morrow but to that americon style of spirit where it is that like burnt orange um sort of like having a sugared orangey cinnamon bun by the campfire kind of a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Bigelay Chinchina being the, the more elegant, more focused, more well executed, but also much higher in price for that reason kind of option. So the Bigelay is, is really the Rolls Royce of the Ameripecan uh, substitute, I think for for what we talk about in terms of sipping and cocktail for sure you know and Um, and it's what's great about the pecan and cider or whatever you can find chiacharo and cider sheena sheena and cider what's great about it is it's almost like aperol spritz but it's it's more delicious it's more complex and uh just got more going on so you still have some of those bitter orange flavors with a sparkling light counterpart but it just makes more sense together yeah And definitely like high acid cider with that rich, round, orangey, dark, bitter thing. So Mm -hmm. it's more bitter darkness than Aperol and a more sort of uh, developed orange texture, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. So I used to love putting it with the first fruit that Foggy Ridge made, which was like a crab apple, like tart, super citrusy, super acidic cider. So when you find those ciders that have that awesome tartness and awesome brightness and acid to them, they're like perfect with the Americon style thing. And you literally can just put like a splash in. So you have a four or five ounce glass of cider and you can choose to have that with or without ice. If you want to make it like a true spritz, you can definitely put it on ice, but my new favorite sort of discovery is, I mean, I've known this since I started studying wine, but the warmer a wine gets in terms of like white wines and sparkling wines, the, you know, the less cold it is, the more characteristic you can pull from it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's usually more enjoyable when it's nice and fresh and cool. So with the cider thing, you know, having a cider that you pull out of the fridge and you don't necessarily put on ice, but you just pour it like a glass of wine or a glass of sparkling wine mm-hmm. and then throw a half an ounce or an ounce of Amaro or like one of those very orange forward Amaros like the Big Alley or a Chiocharo or if you have access to something like an Americon or you can do the Golden Moon thing with a little bit of just like a nice citrus peel and even like a lemon, like a lemon peel expressed just to balance that orangeiness that's in 
the Americon, the Chinachina, the Chiocharo. Because there's a lot of orange characteristic in that. Mm-hmm. But that balance of orange and lemon, which is kind of nice, just like if you did an Aperol spritz and you wanted to put like an orange and a lemon also in there, having the combination of the two is, really gives it some nice harmony. And I just love that it's... Uh, now, you and I are not quite apples and oranges, I would not say. We're more like apples and apples. Maybe yeah. just slightly different varieties of apples or totally. oranges and, you know... You're like a fancy Sevilla orange or something, but uh, <laughs> well, yeah. no, you're like the- a Caracara, and I'm like a blood orange because I got some <laughs> like intense darkness going on. But it's like- That's what's so cool about that drink is it's it's literally apples and oranges, but it works really well, and that's probably oh, it's so good, yeah. What's so cool about it? Yeah. Okay, so we talked about with Diane last week about Pippin Gold, how unique it is. Her Pippin Gold cider which um, she's aging it in her cellar, and it is tough to come by. I wonder if the Pippin Gold, like a dessert cider port, if that is something that we'll see more of. And um, you also have your own kind of experimentations that you're doing with Pippin Gold. So tell us about that. So I hope more people, number one, I hope more people start doing what Diane was doing for a long time because she was making next level cider. But with the Pippin Gold thing and the idea of the dessert port or the dessert fortified cider, there's just so much there that falls in line with really beautiful wines that age for years and years and years and turn into something really cool. And it takes a lot of patience and a lot of restraint. And it's, I, I, have found very few examples of all of the type of dry sparkling ciders that she made since they have stopped producing. Um, and I've never found anything like the Pippin Gold really. Um, but what they did with that was really cool and unique. And I feel like the fact that I was able to save a few bottles of it before it went out of the rotation of the world was something that I'm really excited about. And I'm trying really hard to be patient and show restraint about because um, I think it's going to fall in line with great Sautern and those beautiful like dessert wines that age and turn into something like completely different. Mm hmm the pairing possibilities for that are endless because you have a gamut of sweet and savory and funky and salty and spicy things that can go as a dessert or even as an entree or as a food course that you could have something like that with. So it's, it's um, pretty exciting to think about and listening to you talk to Diane about that and what she was doing and, realizing that I kind of found that same inspiration in Spain, having a really amazing meal with a Psalm who was like, Hey, I've been saving this Sauterne for years and years because of what I thought that it could be kind of like turn the light bulb on for me with the Pippin Gold and realizing what a special thing they were doing at the time that I think you and I were very fortunate to kind of be in the center of that whirlwind Mm -hmm. because I learned a a lot, a lot, a lot about those type of things and and the difference in all of those different ciders and us being able to taste them all side by side really created that kind of understanding that goes along with what the great wines of the world can do for people. And man, that, that Pippin Gold, it's a unicorn. 
Yeah, it really I, is. It really is. Now I want to get into how you, how you were in Spain and you had some amazing meals out there. You had some great cider experiences. I want to get into that in a minute. But um, talking about pairing, because I know you're you're so good at pairing and you're, you're very creative with it. And it's something that you do a lot at Delaney Oyster House. But what, what do you love to pair with cider? And I know that as we talked before the show about, you know, Pakistani meal you had where you're pairing some cider. There's just so many possibilities. But what foods do you really love to pair with cider? What makes it so great for pairing? Yeah, so I think uh, the combination of fruit and acid makes it really great to go with food. For me, the biggest and easiest thing, and I think you've talked before about how like apples and pork go together and apples and herbs go together, but like barbecue is amazing with cider. You know, you think pulled pork, you think spice rubs and briskets and chicken wings and stuff like that. Barbecue's awesome with cider, you know? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about barbecue before I moved to Nashville and of course you have peg leg porker and you have Martins there and those places like just changed my life, you mm, know? Yep. And I've been very fortunate to have the peg leg porker experience on the piney river, which is kind of like the trifecta of amazing, like love in the world. And then peg leg porker, when you brought it to me in the hospital, when I had an asthma attack and peg leg porker where, you know, and it's like, and then Martin's barbecue, luckily enough is in Charleston now too, you know, but in addition to that, you have Rodney Scott doing whole hog barbecue. You have Lewis barbecue doing amazing brisket and also like southwestern type stuff so you really do have an embarrassment of barbecue down there i mean it's kind of amazing here so i feel even though nashville was my my barbecue awakening i'm kind of in the center of this just like slutty hot tub of amazing barbecue in charleston jesus and it it goes making me hungry it goes really well with cider you know it's one of those awesome easy things to do and anytime I know it's like, you know, a little bit crazy, but there are these places now doing like ciders with a little bit of hops to them. Mm-hmm. So they're getting into that beer realm. And so anytime you have like a spicy vinegar based barbecue sauce, ciders with hops are so good with that, you mm. know, and you have the fattiness and fat and acid are so good together. So you have these amazing like opportunities to really enjoy just like, the, the things that are great about barbecue, which is like the burn ends and the crispiness and the smokiness and the fattiness and a little bit of spiciness. And all of that goes so well with just like fruit and acid and whatever kind of like fun hops or wild things or cheesy things that are going into the cider. So really cider from anywhere, I think, goes well with barbecue. Um, That's amazing. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because you wouldn't want like a stout. You wouldn't want like a big, big old IPA necessarily. But cider is going to like refresh your palate a little bit. It's going to be a nice little trade off. And like you said, the fat and the acid thing make a ton of sense. And it's fun. It's all connected. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) And for our listeners that, you know, you could do like for maybe a long day of watching football or a long day of just sitting outside in the beautiful fall weather. Um, you could get pork rinds and toss them in like maybe a little spicy mayo that you that you concoct or just throw like a little spoonful of mayo, 
a little olive oil, maybe a little apple cider vinegar, some paprika and spices, cayenne. Toss that all together and and have some cider with it. That would be like incredible. Football watching. Absolutely. Yeah. Food. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about like, I think one of the best sort of easy things is the like Alabama white sauce. You basically like take some mayonnaise and Mm -hmm. throw some apple cider vinegar and whatever spices you have laying around. And then if you want to fancy it up, you crumble some blue cheese in there and Mm. you have yourself a game day sauce for literally anything you want to dip it in. French fries, chicken wings, hamburgers, you know, squash, whatever. What's great about cider too with with all those things is you can just keep drinking it. It's light. It's going to be lighter than wine. Yes. It's uh, yep. going to be way less alcohol than wine. So as as you taught me about what they said in Spain, don't sip the cider. Do yeah. not sip the cider. That is improper. <laughs> yeah. Improper technique. Well, um, that's that's the thing is it's yeah, the lower alcohol than wine, the less heavy than beer. So you don't feel as filled up. So you really are like throwing back the cider because if you're in hot weather and you've got something that's like crisp with a little bit of funkiness and a little bit of alcohol, it's making you feel good. You really, it's just like thirst quenching, which is kind of like, and and the, the ciders in Spain kind of throw back along the same lines as original saisons. So when they first developed like Saison and farmhouse beers, they were really low alcohol and light and intended to be drunk like on your lunch break when you were working in the farm. And the the Spanish cider thing is the same thing. So a lot of those ciders are only they're like session beer style alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're like four, four or five percent at the most. So the whole point is you don't have to sip them like a 12 percent wine. You can really just like crush them like like thirst quenching, crushable, funky liquid cheese type of things. Yeah, they do have (laughs) yeah liquid parmesan in Spain. Yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) the funky style being like a little bit of a a a, a characteristic of Spanish cider. Yeah. What what else? I know it does have a little bit of funk. We used to joke, sometimes we, we got a few weird ones when we were working together and we'd be like, sorry, but that smells like feet or, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, um, totally. and some of the French ones have that. We should talk about that later. But what else do you think makes the, the cider in Spain stick out so much or, or seem a lot different than what they're doing over here? Yeah, I think it's really cool that it definitely has, so they have this beautiful way of creating intense, like big texture in the cider without like the thick cloying viscosity of traditional market American ciders. So they have so much texture to them, almost like drinking like a medium or full bodied white wine, but it's not cloying like you find with a lot of ciders because it's not sweet. You get amazing, really rich apple fruit, almost like you barrel age the apples and you get a ton of salinity because a lot of these ciders come from either the northern or southern coast of Spain. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the wine there where you get this amazing like salty salinity thing, which I think lends to the kind of cheese and, and funky sort of aspects of it. And then you get the acidity from the fact that you still have these you know, they're, they're growing the apples and they're making the cider like you would make wine. You know, like they they talk about with the terroir of cider and all the things that Diane kind of touched on with how 
these people really think about everything they make food and you know wine and cider in those areas is all the greatest potential that this ingredient you're working with can reach Mm. and so you get the salt from the air and you get the like texture from the apple and you get the acid and the tannin and all of those things and they come together in a way that is really perplexing for people who aren't used to it Mm -hmm. um but I think that that's what makes it really fun is you get to try something and you're like, whoa, like that's you, you first sip like a Basque cider and you're like, that's a little weird. And then someone hands you a little bite of fish or a little bite of like hard cheese or like a slice of like salty, like ham on like aged, you know, ham mm-hmm. and you taste that and then you taste the cider again and you're like, oh, I get it. You know, like there's a place for it. And then once you have a palate for something like that, where you start to really appreciate those things, you're like, oh man, this is like, you can buy an $8 cider from this like super funky place in the Basque region. And it's giving you crazy characteristics like, you know, a 15 year old Chablis that costs $150, you know? It's incredible. It's crazy because when you get those cool old wines that people really want to hold on to in age they gain those funky characteristics that are you know that that really are fun and and interesting and and make you think about what it is you're putting in your mouth yeah because it's like they're taking the the characteristics of growing these apples and farming them and the terroir that they have with like you said the the sort of salty air that gets in there but then they have their own way of sort of processing it. It's almost like they get a little bit more conditioned in the bottle. They age totally. a little bit more in the bottle. They get a yeah. little weirder, a little more complex, get a little yeah. more sparkly. But they also have their own way of like pouring. So can you talk yeah. can you talk about like how they're they're doing that height, height pouring yeah. and things like that? Yeah, and that's a thing with the cider and the wine, which you're right about the the whole sediment thing. It's very like pet knot style, mm-hmm. like that people who are into these wines that are the secondary uh, fermentation that creates the carbonation, like leaving the yeast in there and it creates these crazy cool characteristics. That's like a big thing with the ciders there, which is really neat and adds a lot of that funkiness. But then basically because of that, you know, and you think about when people ask about decanting wine, or why you need to like swirl the glass or put it into decanter and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that you have this thing that technically like used to be, but is still kind of alive Sure. and it's just sitting in a bottle. It's like the, um, like Robin Williams genie in Aladdin where he comes out and he's like, bah! and like freaks everybody <laughs> out and he's so excited <laughs> and so crazy. But it's this thing that's full of character and full of life and full of all of these flavors that's just been like cooped up in this bottle, right? Yep. And especially when you have something with sediment in there, so like really old wines, but also these ciders that have the yeast in them and the sediment in them, you open them up and in order to create the sort of aeration and add the air to it and let all of those characteristics like breathe and really uh, fulfill their their complete potential they literally will pour it from like really great heights so literally like the longer the 
the time in the cider has from the bottle to the glass that you're going to drink it from, the more air that it's receiving and the more it's becoming itself. It like gets to come out of its shell more basically because it's not cooped up in this bottle. It has more time to really hit the glass and hit your face and hit your palate. And so they do that with the cider and they do that with the Chocolina, which, you know, is one of my favorite wines. And when you go to places there, you'll see them pour it from great heights. And that's because it has this slight effervescence and it has this slight like funkiness to it that really the character of the, the, the cider and the wine is able to be free faster because of the, the height that they pour it from. It's funny how the, it would seem to me how they, they would have a hard time keeping track because it's like I feel like they were doing like smaller pours. When I've watched, um, when I've seen like food travel shows or whatever where someone's in Spain and they're doing that, it's like they're pouring like almost like a half glass at a time because they're like, no, yeah. you need to like, I'm going to pour this from a really high height and then you need to drink it up because it's like, it's perfect. It's perfect right yeah. now. And then I'm going to pour you some more. Taste all the things, (laughs) and then you get some more. So it's like instead of having these huge pours, you have a bunch of really cheap small pours. So you either get to taste, uh, you know, a lot of something that you love over and over again, and really get the the like the complete picture of what it is, or you get to try a whole bunch of different things in small amounts, and you get a whole bunch of like really clear pictures. And the diversity of it all in like succession because you're not committed to one giant goblet of something that is going to taste different over the course of like an hour that you sip on it. For sure. Pretty amazing how they drink over there. It's really amazing. They got vermouth on tap. Willing to share. Oh my God. Yeah. Vermouth on tap, Spanish style gin and tonics. um, And then all this beautiful cider, tons of amazing wine. We know that. And you have been making a, I'm going to put you on the spot. You've been making a Spanish style gin and tonic, which we've talked about here on the show a few times. We had, we had, uh, my favorite, uh, quote from Craig, which I think that was season two. I don't know. That could have been season one. I'm losing track now, but we had Craig from Peninsula who makes his own tonic. And he said, um, yeah, you know, these Spanish gin and tonics, they're lighter. And it's lighter gin, and it's more botanicals, bunch of stuff infused into the glass while you're drinking it. This beautiful thing. And he's like, if they drank gin and tonics at the ratio that we drink gin and tonics, they'd have to do even more cocaine than they already do. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. But um, yeah, you've been making a really cool gin and tonic at the Delaney Oyster House. Can you share? Yeah. Can you share with us that? Yeah. And then I want to hear about your vermouth sangria. So, uh, so this is sort of, it's not really an on menu thing. It's sort of like a in and out animal style kind of thing, but yeah, you got to know, you know, I was inspired by it's, we don't have, I mean, we, we have an amazing martini program. So our selection of vodka and selection of gin is expansive, which is really, really fun because it's, it's great to have those conversations and be able to match up just like we used to with the different whiskeys and people's characteristics and what they liked and making the right cocktail for them out of those, that expansive selection we had. It's the same kind of thing with the different gins and the different vodkas and martini options and having those conversations. And, uh, you know, it's really, really fun. Um, But of course we, we just, 
use, you know, the good clean tonic that we get from Jack Rudy. We use their actual like tonic water in bottles um, because it's nice and clear. It keeps it light. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really fresh. It goes really well with seafood and it's great for basically all types of gin. Um, And so, you know, the whole, from my understanding, the whole inspiration and, and sort of intention behind the way that the Spanish do their gin and tonics is to match the garnishes and the botanicals and things with the gins and the tonics and the different variations that they have of that. And so they'll put different garnishes in each drink based on what type of gin they're using, what type of tonic they're using and things like that. Um, And we have a very small bar and we have a very small crew and we have a very uh, thankfully large amount of people who want to come and enjoy the things that we offer. And so um, we keep it pretty straightforward, but a Spanish style or a fluffy or a kind of more spritz style gin and tonic, um, basically I get to play with the stuff that the kitchen has. And so I have a little collection of things behind the bar. Um, so I've been making for people gin and tonics and we talk about what type of gin they like. And one of my favorites from, I think you brought it up, but we'll talk about drinking French. My new favorite discoveries is the Citadel gin that the Pierre Ferrand company makes. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. But making these gin and tonics and throwing a few juniper berries in there and throwing a few sesame peppercorns or pink peppercorns in and then some citrus peels or citrus wheels and a little bit of whatever herbs we have from the garden which i've been very fortunate to play with stuff that kevin's been growing so he's got some african blue basil and some holy basil and some really just beautiful mint of different varieties and so i've been putting a lot of basically in a wine a wine glass like a spritz glass doing like two ounces of gin over ice, you know, topping it with tonic, giving it a soft stir with a citrus peel and then throwing whatever little seeds and peppercorns and juniper berries and stuff that I have. And then beautiful like basil leaves and things like that on top. Mm. And it's, it just like elevates your experience, even though it's a gin and tonic. And I, it makes me happy because I feel like, the gin and tonic, the vodka tonic, the, those type of things sort of, you know, in the 90s and, and early 2000s drinking culture were just like a, a vehicle for inserting alcohol into your body without really appreciating the nuances or the taste of it. For sure. You know, and so being able to present it in a more artistic way, even though it's still a very simple, straightforward drink, it to me, it brings out what's cool about tonic and it brings out what's cool about the botanicals and different gins and why there's not just one gin on the market. Yeah. And all of these gins exist for a reason. Yeah. They've all got um, a few things in common, potentially. Um, totally. With juniper. But yeah. what's amazing is, yeah, the breadth of flavor between just throwing out a few of my favorites from like Terroir from St. George, Citadel, you mentioned, Heck and like yeah. the botanist. Yeah. And then. You know, here yeah. at the house, my wife and I, there's really no martini that exists that's not a Plymouth martini. That's just Plymouth. the way it is. Oh, yeah. That's just the way it is. Oh, um, my gosh, yeah. But then if we're making other cocktails, it's usually our, our friends at Bristow, our friends at Cathead Ooh, with yeah. the Bristow gin. But uh, oh, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that barrel-aged Bristow making burly mar- like Martinez and, and hanky-panky type cocktails for whiskey drinkers is, used to be one of my favorite 
Oh, that's a that, my favorite place. <laughs> that's a good point with uh, this time of year, getting into autumn and getting into mildly spiced drinks and, you know, getting into some fall flavors. The barrel aged yeah. gin's perfect for that. Perfect. Totally. Mm. Yeah. So you're also Anyways, making sorry, you're also forward. making a uh, vermouth sangria. Sounds just lovely. So what are you doing with that one? So that is that's a lot of uh, what I learned from Mike Wolf and Kevin King in <laughs> inspiration for technique and flavor profiles. But you know that vermouth is my favorite thing to drink on the planet. Oh yeah, I mean um, you were our uh, you know you were our guest in studio yeah. for the uh, vermouth <laughs> is the truth episode. Yep. Yeah, yep. and uh, so. The, the beauty of, of vermouth in especially batched cocktails is that it, it really does the job of what like bitters would do in a single cocktail where it creates balance and it creates harmony because you have. So really what we've done is we've taken the, the concept of sangria, which is, you know, a wine base and we take an aromatic white wine and we take a little bit of Pisco. And then we take a combination of dry white vermouth and sweet white vermouth. And we've been playing with just like different brands that we have and different styles that we have. So some of them have a little oxidation and some of them, a lot of them have a lot of like floral qualities. And some of them have some of those like Mediterranean herby pizza qualities to them. And we kind of put them together. And then, uh, to be perfectly honest, we take whatever fruit the kitchen has and a little bit of simple syrup, and we just, like, mash that all together. Mm -hmm. And then when we get done with service at the end of the night, I take whatever herbs we have left over for garnishes, and I just throw it in there. And we just let it sit for a couple days. And then we strain it out, and we literally combine that in a glass with ice and then like a splash of lemon juice and a little bit of Topo Chico. Mm. And we garnish it with some of the pickled blueberries that the kitchen has for the sorbet and some of the beautiful basil that Kevin brings from his garden and a little lemon wheel. And it's, it's kind of like having sangria meets a Spanish gin and tonic meets an Italian grandpa drink. Well, and, um, sangria that doesn't suck number one, but also, Uh, A lot of sangria sucks because it's like, let's take the cheapest wine that you can find, like wine that you would just cook with. Take wine that you have at home that's been open for too long. You're like, oh, we opened this for a special dinner and then we forgot to finish the rest of it or it's like been in your fridge for a couple extra days. I'm not saying like you have wine that's been sitting on your shelf open for a month and a half that you should put that in sangria. Yeah. But that is kind of the genesis of the Calimocho. But but like but this is really taking wine that can really be as cheap as you want it to be, but but I like to use aromatic wine. It's really the the essence of like where vermouth comes from. Is you're taking something that's aromatic but not necessarily filled with character, and then you're just kind of beefing it up to add some like texture and character to it. Yeah. And the I think one of the key things one of the key things that you mentioned about sangria is the infusion of like a couple days. I think that 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 makes a huge difference. Even if you're making like a, I call it just California style sangria, where you're going to do like strawberries and blueberries and some citrus fruit, and you're going to infuse that for a couple days. And then, like you said, it makes a ton of sense to liven it back up with sparkling water or 
you know, sparkling wine or something like that. But it's really the infusion that makes it sangria. So I think, yeah. you know, two days is is good. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty good, simple. It's good to have a little bit of sugar in there because the sugar will grasp on to whatever you're putting in there to infuse it with. Mm-hmm. And then really like balance it out with the alcohol. So you're making a very versatile, very accessible party drink. So whether your party is just you because of a pandemic or you've been quarantined or you're in a house, you know, with a few friends or loved ones. Or screaming children. You know, yep. Or screaming children. <laughs> um, you know, we have, I live in a really rad condo complex where my neighbors have like a socially distanced happy hour by the pond. You know, oh, cool. and so I've I've taken some of the just like things sitting around my house and brought it like made a sangria and brought it down there and everyone has their own cup and <laughs> you know that's great just like share the love so but we've yeah we've really and it's you know because the restaurant because Delaney Oyster House is this beautiful Charleston single house with these piazzas with a nice breeze going through it literally is like I think we wanted to originally call it like the porch pounder or something like that. We, <laughs> we call it the Piazza punch because it is just like a crushable, light, beautiful, hot weather drink. Yeah. Piazza punch sounds like you up the price about a dollar or two. I mean, you sh- as you should. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm throw kidding. Piazza in there and I'm, you throw Piazza in there and I'm ready. Yeah. Um, well, you, and you can't forget the view as well. So, yeah. you know, there's palm trees everywhere here. So making me jealous. Yeah, we're we're thinking about for the the autumn winter uh, sangria that we're going to do something very similar to what you and I created with the um, Calimocho Amaro kind of thing. So mm-hmm. We're going to do a little like red wine, Mexican Coke, and Amaro like winter sangria. I think sounds um, great. Once it actually gets cold here. <laughs> so I haven't really thought a whole lot about sangria much. Um, but I do remember doing things like that for like brunches and and brunch parties and stuff like that. Is it still, so you being in Charleston, you get even, even probably during a pandemic, you're getting some tourists coming through there. Are people still, uh, interested in sangria? Is it like catching people? Like people are like, oh yeah, sangria. I want that. Yeah. I mean, we don't technically call it sangria, but people are definitely interested in nice, light, you know, Yep. Sangria, spritzy, you know, the, the whole spritz thing is huge. And it's amazing when the weather drops here, when the weather drops, you know, it's still pretty warm here. (laughs) Yeah. It's still warmer than what you and I dealt with in Colorado. So it's, you know, people are, are here visiting and they see palm trees and they think I'm on vacation. And so the sangria thing is huge. People, you know, I, even with everything that's been going on and, and in Charleston having been kind of a hotspot and now it's sort of mellowing a little bit, there's still people visiting here like crazy, but they, the cool thing is, is most of them, the high percentage of them are very respectful most of them are coming from places that um, have been even more of a hot spot. And so they are very respectful about wearing their masks, even as you approach a table and things like that. But the biggest thing is they really just want to enjoy themselves. A lot of them, it's like their first time sitting inside in yeah. a restaurant or in a bar in months. 
you know, yeah. or being able to sit on the patio and have an actual meal that they didn't have to cook or pick up and take out of a paper bag or something like that in months, you know? Sure. So people really want to celebrate. So yeah, sangria is huge, but really it's everything. Well, you know, we have, I think that the beauty of, you know, we had kind of a, a sort of magical combination of humans and timing and uh sort of a beautiful thing when when we were at husk and it was you and me and kevin and kenneth all together like that was kind of an epic moment in restaurant history for sure um for sure it was a very very special time and yeah for restaurants you're right do yeah the things at husk that we got to do in that time and the four of us bringing all of the special skills that each of us had together and, and creating this kind of wonderful thing was, was really a game changer. And the fact that Kevin and I have gotten to work together and put together this list that I think not only complements the food that we are serving, but also speaks to the culture of people wanting to be in a, a beach-like place, but wanting to have something that's more than just like trashy beach cocktails, you know, and have, sure. so being able to like elevate stuff and offer something that's not super complicated, but makes you really enjoy it and, and kind of takes it to the next level has been really fun. And I think people just are so hungry for that because of the fact that everything that everyone's been through. Yeah, And so it's been really fun to be able to come out being super concerned that I'm, I was never going to be able to have those kind of connections again and have people really appreciate it and experience it even through a mask, being able to smile with your eyes and have people really get what it is you're trying to do and what you're passionate about doing. Well, that's amazing. Uh, you're doing great work there. I'm glad people are being respectful. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few riffraff. There's there's quite a few entitled douchebags in this city, but most of them have been <laughs> here for a really long time. So <laughs> <laughs> you're like, hey, you uh, you are from around here. Yeah. <laughs> I can I tell. See right, I see right through your white pants. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, thanks so much for for talking to us tonight and uh, covering a lot of ground here. It was amazing yeah. as always. Um, oh my gosh, so much fun. I'm sorry I talk so much. I get so excited when I get to talk to you. No, it's, it's great. Uh, we look forward to having you as a contributor on season three. We're going to talk the Brooklyn Cocktail, Maripacan. We've got that coming up. Um, we'll probably have you jump in on chocolate when we get into chocolate, and we're going to get into some hot chocolate stuff for closer to Christmas. And, uh, and then we've got to talk uh, around Thanksgiving. We're going to do a bunch of pairing stuff. So that'll cool. be that'll be fun, too. Sounds fun. All right. It's Jessica Backus, fantastic uh, bar manager, lead bartender at Delaney Oyster House in Charleston. Go see them. They're on Instagram at Delaney Oyster House. And Jess, what's your Instagram for the folks? Uh, my Instagram is at Bacchus like Bacchus. So my last name, um, just like the God of Wine, but spelled more Germanly. Excellent. <laughs> Well, you'll see it on the uh, Liquid Gold Insta, and uh, people can reach out to you. Yeah, thanks so much, and uh, we will talk to you on Season 3. Awesome. I love you, buddy. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for all that you do. Love you too, Jess. All right, thanks so much to Jess. Look forward to having her along in Season 3 and joining us more often. We just love talking to her about all things beverage, and she just has a wealth of knowledge to share. So 
Look forward to more from Jess. And now we're going to turn things over to an interview with Chris Haston, sort of the flip side from Foggy Ridge, from Diane. This is somebody who's looking to scale up their operation, not scale back, and is thinking about planting all these pear and apple trees on the property. And so in about five years, we'll have you know, all these different apples, different varieties, in addition to the 50 and 100-year-old trees on his property. But this guy knows his beer, he knows his cider, he knows his wine. So he's coming from a really cool place down there in southeastern Tennessee. So let's turn it over. Chris Haston, C. Haston Ciders, right here on Liquid Gold. Now we've got a cider maker, Mr. Chris Haston, C. Haston Ciders. What's up, Chris? What's going on, Mike? How are you doing? Good, man. Thanks for coming on and talking to us today. We've got a cider maker who uh, and fermenter doing his thing on a farm here in Middle Tennessee, or I suppose southeastern Tennessee, southeast of Nashville. Where are you at, in McMinnville-ish area? So it's between Sparta and Spencer. Okay. Um, it's kind of in the you know in the valley of uh, of the Spencer Mountain. Awesome. Well, but I've seen the right, pictures. It's, like it's... Fall Creek Falls. Yeah, right there near Fall Creek Falls. I saw that. So that's. Do you get to hike out there every once in a while? Every once in a while, I feel like I'm usually pretty much like stuck at the farm doing uh, what I want to get done over there before I even venture out. But uh, every once in a while, I get out there. It's beautiful out there. You're living on a farm that's been in your family for a while now, correct? Yeah, it's uh, the Hasten Farm. I mean, it goes back to 1879, so it's considered a, a Tennessee century farm uh, with you know continued uh, agricultural uh, activities throughout the whole time. It's been everything from cattle to tobacco, corn. Right now, uh, my dad's kind of managing the farm from my uncle, and uh, they lease it to a farmer that has 50 head of cattle. So they're not actually like doing any of the dirty work. They're kind of like the gentleman farmers. And uh, but otherwise, it's just it's just cattle and and hay. Wow. Uh, and there's a lot of acres out there, so that's kind of where like the cider kind of idea comes in because already there's nine old apple trees, three old pear trees. Some of them are over like a hundred years old and wow. um, it's like amazing fruit. And it's been like everything is giving. I've gone out there and I just see all this like drop fruit and it's like, we got to do something with this. Yeah. And after being a home brewer for, for many years, it's like, I finally, a couple years ago, you know, we, we got a press, we got the mill. It's like, all right, let's do this. Let's see what happens with our apples. And it's been a fun process. That's awesome. Yeah. So given a little background, you and I worked together at Woodland Wine Merchant. Yes, sir. Swilling that uh that good booze and Man, and- what a great gig that was. You know, not only was a is it was it cool to like connect to just, you know, local lovers of good wine, good good booze, good beer, but you know, especially for me, I came in there with like a kind of a beer background and food background and um you know, I kind of ran like the beer insider world, but being able to be exposed to you know, all the pet gnats and all like the crazy bourbons and just the knowledge of Will and, and Kevin, all those guys. Like I really, that was a great experience. I was there for, I think two and a half years. And that was, that was an awesome time. Just tons of knowledge learned. So there's so much to learn every day there. Every single day. It's humbling. Cause it's like, you know, you can never really think that you knew everything. Uh, you, you, <laughs> yeah. Nowhere near it. You know, there's so, so much to learn. Yeah. So you were, you were really heading up the beer department there and you were into a lot of old world styles of beer, but also, you know, some of the new funkier stuff coming out of Nashville and, and other parts of the country. Um, but I do remember talking to you about this orchard that was in your family and how you were thinking about moving back or you were moving back to the farm. And um, 
What's that like? And I know you also, given a, a little bit more background, you also play drums. Um, so what has that been like for you going back to the land? I mean, has it been, has it, has it fulfilled you? Has it been what you uh, kind of expected it to be? So, you know, I still spend a lot of time in Nashville. Um, and I feel like, I, you know, I still do some, I still do some, some food stuff. I still do some, you know, my girlfriend lives here. Obviously that keeps me here, but um, going to the farm, it, it's, it's, every time I go down 285 down to the farm, you know, I definitely feel a connection to the land and I feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. And every time I, I leave the farm, I always feel like I'm like doing the wrong thing. Like I, I'd rather just stay at the farm and do that. So I love going out there. It's also cool. Still kind of having, you know, a, a, you know, a foot in Nashville, which is, I mean, it's, there's, there's so much food, even during COVID, you know, yep. besides that, I mean, it's such a hot food and like drink market that it's, it's hard to not be attracted to that. So it's cool being able to go from like the extreme country hillside isolation, you know, history to, to, to Nashville. Um, it's kind of a cool back and forth. Very true. I mean, the, the beverages here is crazy. The beverage scene, the, uh, the beer, the beer scene, scene has exploded. The, is, the cocktail scene is unreal, man. Yeah, food food um, is incredible. I mean, right now we have all these like amazing little pop-ups going on. Oh, yeah. There's incredible tortillas now. Uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. But, uh, the important things are happening. Yeah. The orchard that's that's there at the Haston Family Farm, mm-hmm. do you know what kind of – what variety of apples you're working with there? Yes and no. Um there's one tree that's obviously red delicious and uh this is in a row of trees of uh, five that my great uncle planted 30 35 years ago and i'm 38 years old so the, the trees are old, as old as i am and they, they've never been as far as i know sprayed with any 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 chemicals uh, they've barely been pruned so they're they're beasts and they're standard size you know a lot of people know about like different rootstock with apple trees you know you got like dwarf and semi-dwarf and standard these are definitely standard size trees so they're they're every bit of 30 35 feet tall and they're, they're monsters um and i i know one is red delicious one is macintosh there's some younger trees more like in a 15 to 20 year like range and one of them is a uh, yellow delicious that doesn't really do well as getting some some cedar rust and it's it's kind of it doesn't really like the southern climate and then there's a a granny smith that they're super tart awesome apples but i mean they have a this blotty blotch mm-hmm. syndrome fungi going on which is it's, it's totally cosmetic it makes it has this kind of black like hue on the apple um mm-hmm. and it's ugly as can be but it's they're great for cider it doesn't matter so i i, I know about those otherwise there's an old hundred year old apple tree we, i mean we say it's arkansas black but i don't know that it is and uh the pear trees, one's a Bartlett, the others, <laughs> no idea. Wow, there and some of the pear trees I saw are huge. Don't, they're monsters. like enormous. Like, uh, one's one's definitely like around fifty feet. Uh, another one's like forty feet. And the old one, uh, the one that's like to me the coolest. There's a, uh, it, it's well over hundred years old. Um, and it's kind of at like the, the like the the foot of my dad's front yard where his his, his house is. My great grandmother is known to uh, pick pears from that tree for pear preserves, and like my, my family still talks about my great grandmother's pear preserves. It's like a known thing. Oh wow! And it came from like this very tree, which I picked for my my, my peri. So that's pretty cool. And the trees, I mean, it's it's I need to graft it before it falls apart because it's 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 kind of hollowed out and it's it's gnarly, but it's 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 a beautiful, awesome tree. And the pears are like awesome pears. So, that's I have amazing. No idea what kind of pears they are. 
tell us a little bit about your process. So from the from the apples to when you you feel like it's time to make cider with them, what's your process like in terms of using your press and like just the physicality of it? Are you um, and one thing I want you to 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 answer is about the um, timeliness of it. Are you are you like man? I've only got so much time to like get this stuff done. You know, so all the apples I've been using um, have been apples that I've I've, I've picked by hand. And uh, the big thing about, you know, apples is they have to be perfectly ripe, you know, and there's a difference between like, you know, ripe on the shelf to eat, you know, as like mm-hmm. a, as a dessert and, you know, ripe for, for cider purposes, which I always use like the banana bread theory. If you're going to make banana bread, you don't want to use like fresh bananas from the store that are starchy and perfectly sure. green. Sure. You want to use those bananas that are like brown and like nearly black and like all those starches have turned into sugar. Mm-hmm. That's what makes like the baddest, like banana bread right yeah and it's the same with apples you really want those starches to convert to sugar so one thing is instead of like picking apples from the tree because i'm not making fresh juice i'm less concerned about like pathogens like E. coli because of fermentation yeah so i'm not picking apples i'm letting them drop so i'm uh i'm going out to the farm you know every you know every week or so and i'm seeing why apples have dropped and those are what i pick up um if they haven't been damaged by animals and they haven't been rotting. I mean, they're good to go. Um, if they're dirty, I don't care. I'll, I'll wash them off. But uh, mm-hmm. that's where I start. The second part is uh, letting them sweat. So, and that has to do with like you know the banana theory. Once they're picked, I mean, they're good. But you really want to like have your thumb like give a good indentation mm-hmm. or in, uh, into the apple. You want to like put your thumb in it, and it doesn't kind of bounce back. That's when that's right. So what I do. I put it on a tarp in my shed. I have like a little sunny shed, and I let them sit for like two weeks, three weeks, and I really let them get like really mature. Uh, and that's when I do the uh, the milling. Okay. And I, I do a maceration. Not everybody does, but I'll mill and I'll let it sit overnight, and it kind of turns brown. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have eat apple, and it like immediately kind of turns brown. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the uh, the pomace. So this by the next morning, it's like deep red, brownish, kind of like change in color sure i feel like that really helps like i mean it helps with the flavor helps with the 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 color it's a really cool process yeah everybody does it um but i do and i get a really dark juice as a result oh cool Uh, so then the next day our press isn't like the best press but it's like a manual press we press first in the morning and usually i do most of the work my dad watches and kind of laughs so um, (laughs) (laughs) so the pressing thing is like hopefully we can improve upon our press next year but that takes me the longest of the whole, like the whole process. Yeah. And then from there, um, important thing I don't do is I don't add sulfites. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of people when they're making like cider, they're kind of worried about the wild yeast. Like I'm, I'm kind of doing like a mixed fermentation where I encourage the wild yeast. Yep. Uh, so I'm not adding the sulfites. Um, and I'm adding, <laughs> I have a very unscientific like yeast method. Um, instead of adding like the whole package of like a cultured yeast or doing a starter, I literally add like a, a, a teaspoon of, of like wine yeast, dry mm-hmm. wine yeast, and just like that's all it is. It kind of that will kind of take over the fermentation. Yeah, there's enough wild yeast going on within the apples and on the skin that kind of like gives it some character. But the uh, the, the yeast I pitch kind of definitely is a dominant yeast. And from there, I let that go uh, post Christmas, and then I'll start thinking about bottling. And people can see pictures of the cider shed that you mentioned. Super rustic, super cool at. C Haston Cider. That's C H A S T O N Cider on Instagram. 
how happy have you been with your results and what what kind of uh ciders might you compare it to or what are you uh what are you getting out of it taste wise yeah, so like this year i'm going for a very like just straightforward like kind of english rustic cider so they're going to be like dry as a bone you know hopefully a little bit on a little bit of bitterness and mm-hmm. a little bit of tartness and just a little bit of carbonation so just really simple farm style like english cider and so far from like the, the sample i've tried for out of the, out of the tanks like I'm, I'm happy with, with what they're hitting. Like they're tasting good. As far as like alcohol, I, I tell my girlfriend, like it works. <laughs> like I've, I've actually hit a, a higher gravity than I was expecting. I'm hitting like seven and a half, eight percent okay. on my cider so far, which was kind of a surprise. There's so much sugar in those apples. Yeah. Um, so the, the cider is going great. The Perry is the one that's giving me a little bit of a kind of a conundrum. And so Perry's, tell us, let's back up a little bit. So tell me, yeah. um, cause I know you're into Perry. Tell us just for our listeners, like, what is Perry? I know it's like a, it's kind of a British thing, British pear cider, for, yeah, and, and it it's real common in, times, yeah. So it's like ancient, yeah, it's pretty much, it's, it's pear wine, so it's the same thing, it kind of is cider, um, but pear, Perry is a little bit different than cider as it contains, instead of malic acid that's, uh, that apples have, it contains citric acid, and it also contains a sugar called sorbitol, which mm-hmm. is non-fermentable, so it will actually like always have a little bit of residual sweetness after fermentation uh-huh. and the acid is different so it has that, that citric acid kind of bite as opposed to that malic acid apple kind of kind of it's a, it's a different it's a different acid so um yep. but so that's different also that citric acid um has a tendency to want to go to acetic acid which turns into that's that vinegar kind of like nail polish thing which kind mm-hmm. of gets into what i'm dealing with currently so i have two batches of perry fermenting right now in the in the basement one of them is doing great. It's 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 tasting great. It has almost like a little smoky thing going on. Um, I'm really I'm really pleased with where it's gone. The other one, unfortunately, has that telltale like nail polish remover vibe going on, uh-huh. and it's like yeah, I can... spent so much effort on those pairs. I'm like I want to do well, and it's just like it's not happening. So it's kind of like fifty fifty. You know, like you win some, you you lose some. Can you so, rig up yeah. a still to uh, distill them? Well, my. So, so my kind of contingency plan is to, uh, you know, to make uh, vinegar. So oh, this yeah. point I'm going to have some pear vinegar. Oh, um, cool. And that's something I'm kind of into down the line anyway. You know, um, vinegars and pickles would be a very like natural extension of doing, you know, apple cider. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where this, that that's going to go. Are you, are you into, so the, the pears that I've tried, like Normandy style, like pear cider? which has like a little bit of funk to it. Are you like approaching any of that or are you getting so, more of that kind of cheek biting citric acid pop? So the one thing that my, my, my parents are kind of lacking and I would say my apples do for the most part is like a solid, like tannic component, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really, I think what separates like the old world parries from kind of like the, the, the new, like kind of like dessert, dessert fruit parries. Mm-hmm. If I were to put like a benchmark, it would be like, Joanna Cession out of Brittany, um, her 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 Perry. It's like top notch. It's delicate. Mm. It's floral. It's dry. It's it's there's a finesse there. Um, I mean that's that's definitely like the, the the benchmark. And to get anywhere close to that would be like amazing. If I'm like a quarter of the way to that, and I, I'm not, you know, like yeah, <laughs> that's that's like top notch level Perry. The cool thing is. Uh, my Perry has a lot of potential and it really needs to age. Like I'm not really going to know how my side or my Perry is going to really turn out until 
like, you know, like late spring, summer, it, it takes that long for the whole process to kind of, you know, from, from this point, from, you know, primary to secondary fermentation to, to racking to like actually, you know, bottling. And, you know, if I have to disgorge, you know, like I'll, I'll know that pretty, pretty early on yep. and then, uh, go from there. So, yeah. Will you let them, uh, age down in like your, you have like a basement type cellar thing. Will you let them, let them age in, in secondary fermentation for a little while? Yeah. So, um, so after, uh, I have these like nifty tanks, um, that have spigots on them. So it's really easy to rack, you know, like transfer the liquid. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is like, once it's done like primary fermentation, I leave them only like maybe like three quarters of the way up in the tank. So if they're going to start exploding, like they have some room to go. Yep. Um, and once after like a week and that dies down, um, maybe two weeks, I kind of, I top off the other tanks and I kind of, I fill them all up and, kind of um leave zero like like headspace with the oxygen and from there it can stay like that past christmas and i'll probably rack them to get them off the lees i might leave them on the lees i'm not that i'm, I'm kind of on the, on the fence about what i want to do about that i might just leave them on the lees that might be more interesting anyway but um anyway they're, they're not going to go anywhere uh besides those tanks until after christmas and then from there they're going to go to like uh 750 mil like champagne style kind of bottles awesome man well i can't I, i'm gonna have to try some of this Come, uh, what, New Year's Eve? February? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you definitely have some coming your way, and we can have another follow-up chat, man. Yeah, awesome. Tell me also, because um, it used to fascinate me, and I watched the YouTube video that you showed me of the cave system. Oh, yeah. And is that that's so, relatively like below the property somewhere? Yeah, it's deep back in the property. There's a there's like kind of a, a dry riverbed, and there's a the the, the story goes that there was uh, some some splunkers coming out of uh, the, the cave starting on Fall Creek Falls. And I think they were like 15 hours into their their journey, and they found a a, a cave rat. And a cave rat uh, signifies that there's an opening within like 100 feet. I think that's something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they like GPS where they were, and it turns out they were like on the back end of like the our Hasten family farm. Um, so they contacted my dad about like if they if they could excavate and find this opening, and they, they found it. And it's a uh, you know it's right off the uh, um, right off this dry river, but I don't think my grandfather or any of my family knew about it prior. That's and, um, amazing. It's it, it it's pretty much like 15 hours in you're back at Falkery Falls and it's intense. I've been 20 feet in it, but, um, I won't go any further pretty much 20 feet into it. You're kind of like crouching down. Yeah. And then after that, there's like a 20 foot stretch where it's like only a foot and a half high and you're like crawling on your stomach. And then it goes into a cavern that you could fit like two semi trucks in. So it's, it's amazing. Insane. But <laughs> I've only experienced 20 feet. of that. <laughs> Yeah. So, but you've seen the videos and I've seen the videos and it's a h- enormous area. Yeah, and, it's um, incredible. Uh, there are like serious cavers that go out there um, almost every weekend. Uh, and, you know, they like to sign the waiver, and you know they're all they they, they all they know what they're doing. Um, they always invite my dad, and my dad's like, "You guys are crazy." But, um, <laughs> he, he he has them almost every weekend come out, and uh, they always say it's one of like the the most expansive, impressive like caves and, that they've seen around you know in the south. So if you're standing in front of it in the summer, if it's like maybe August, the air shoots out like an air conditioner and a shot fan just like right at you 50 degrees uh, 50 degrees air it's pretty it's pretty wild from from like a hole in a dry riverbed yeah it's yeah like, it's like maybe like four feet tall and maybe like a foot and a half wide two feet wide and it's just the air just like is just blowing at you that's that's crazy yeah man <laughs> wow Thanks so much for chatting with us about your process and everything. And what do you, uh, are you looking to bottle next year or something or, or uh, kind of get some of this stuff around? 
you know, we're kind of, we're kind of like a, a scale up process right now. So we, we have like, you know, the 10 or so trees, we're planting 30 more this spring. They're already ordered and they're mostly either American heirloom, uh, French cider or English cider apples. Um, so we're like really heavy on like the bitter sweets and tannins. Um, and then from there we have, there's a, a five acre kind of hill that's not being utilized by like the cattle that's going to end up being like the big orchard. So there's kind of like a, a, a several phase wow. operation of like scaling, uh, scaling up. So that's amazing. Um, it, it, the joke is when's the best time to plant an apple tree? Ten years ago, yeah, and then, yeah. you know the other phrase is like you know you, you plant pears for heirs. So it's really planting the trees is like a long term investment, sure. and it's really just kind of getting getting all your ducks in a row with that. Yeah, I think Diane told us that uh, you know it was about three years, um, which was relatively a, a faster turnaround for some of her apples. When she started her orchard, it was like three years before she had some cider that she was like, "All right, well, this is pretty good." Yeah, it sounds pretty accurate. Yeah, and yeah. she's—I mean, she's an absolute, absolute uh, legend. So yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm honored to even be on the same kind of like, you know, podcast as her. So that's well, that's we'll give her your number. You could call her up and uh, <laughs> get some wisdom from her. We'll be heading out there when it's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit safer in the spring or something. Head yeah, head out and fine. see her in Virginia. So you might have to tag along. Hell yeah, that sounds like a plan. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. Mike, my pleasure. And uh, again, find him at C Haston Cider, C H A S T O N, Chris Haston. Hopefully, we'll see you around Nashville here soon, too, brother. Yeah, man. I'm here. All right, dude. Take care. All right. Talk to you later. All right. It's, uh, it's a very special episode this week. Uh, Kenneth and I are both Sopranos fans. We know the magic and the importance of a good season finale. So we're probably just going to all of a sudden fade to a black screen at the end of this. But Kenneth Dedman, happy uh, happy season two end of year party. You never know what's going to happen here uh, in a couple weeks. Lindsey Graham in trouble. Our friend Jess Backus out down there in South Carolina doing her best to, uh, to, to vote out Mr. Graham. So he can fuck right off. And the time has come as we get topical for... Chow, chow, chow. Booze News with Kenneth Dedman, Season 2 Finale, Part 2. This is the end this time for real. Until next time, in a world where a man reads a newspaper stained with booze. So, Kenneth, what's uh, what's booze-worthy out there? And also, are you, uh, is it true that you're going to bob for apples this year? Uh, that's, a, that's a hard no, Mike. <laughs> While we're going to stay on subject, uh, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, published an interesting article, Why Do We Bob for Apples, Not for Pears, which, like, Mike, you alerted me to it, and I sat there and thought for, like, 45 minutes today, like, why do we bob for apples? Why do we bob for apples, period? And have I ever bobbed for apples before? And if I did, did I enjoy it? The answer's no. But um, any... It's kind of one of those things that like uh, you're like everybody does this, and then you're like, no, they don't. No one does uh, that. <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, you know, like a w- when they say like, hey, come on, kids, let's pick up sticks. Bobbing for apples was the worst. I remember doing it at some sort of fucking state fair sort of function, and my sister came up behind me and held my head underwater, so I was like 
it's kind of a terrifying experience, man. And like you're basically basically Damn. like telling children to waterboard each other for fun, it, and like the reward is a freaking apple. I don't really dangle apples or make it hard for anyone. Like if it was my child, I, I wouldn't make it hard for my child to get an apple. Give the kid an apple and let them go run around and shit. Don't like make them stick their head underwater. Yeah, sure. I want to get waterboarded, dude. I, I'll get Jaeger boarded, maybe. Like that sounds like fun. Jaeger <laughs> like... boarded. Hold on, let me write that down. We need some season three topics. Jaeger boarded. Got it. All right. Well, I didn't. Good idea. I didn't mean to get off subject. Uh, basically, apples and pears are incredibly similar. They have comparable taste profiles. They grow on trees that look incredibly similar. Why do pears sink and why do apples float? has to do with basically density. There are two things that uh, make anything like organic float, and that would be either an excess of, of gas between uh, cell walls and uh, fat. And apple, of course, doesn't have very much fat. But the apple, although having very similar uh, cell structure as a pear, the apple cells are kind of set apart and have a lot more room in between. Kind of like the the galaxy, you know. Well, there's a lot of space in between uh, the cell walls of uh, of the the apple as opposed to the pear. In some apples, it's up to 25 percent of the volume is just gas in an apple, as opposed to a pear, where it's um, right around five six percent. Well, it's a lot of fun. Super cool. How did I how did I talk about? Oh yeah, bobbing for apples. Me to get off subject, bro. <laughs> Waterboarding for apples. <laughs> That'll be the name of your uh, memoir. That would be a good one. Uh, an, a real eye grabber. Or you know what would be even better is probably Jaeger Boarded My Life in Bars by Kenneth Dedman. That's yeah, pretty good. good. With the whole like, Jaeger boarded background and stuff, too. Like, Right on. What uh, what else is boozeworthy oh, out man. there? Well, we, we've talked about companies doing this before, but I thought it was trollable this week. Uh, have you ever heard of Bespoken Spirits, Mike? Yeah, they are, uh, they're out to disrupt, disrupt the booze industry. I yeah, heard about by this mi- by mixing uh, science and tech. They have the tools to engineer and control the aroma and flavor of certain spirits that they're making, uh, including whiskey. They plan on doing a, a five day aging that's uh, supposed to shave about nine years off of the aging process, basically by like just using wood chips. That I haven't. They, they, no one really gets into the science behind what they're doing other than like explaining to me that they're sous vide spirits period and uh uh-huh. analyzing the flavor profiles and finding out what like chemical structures give you uh one flavor or the other uh bespoken is uh financed primarily but not exclusively by former yankee uh derek jeter now this is kind of just like a weird marketing thing because these companies come along like three or four times a year we hear about some like science nerd getting into the spirits business and producing age spirits in record time we've covered All it before time. i remember yeah, season like, one uh, wasn't we had a few correct me if i'm wrong but that old the old uh medley distillery for a brief time yeah. at least was bought and uh some company was doing the same thing. Right. Um, and the the company that we did talk about, season one, 
that did take over the old Medley distillery was Terracentia, Terracentia, an international conglomerate, no, an international spirits company with some mystery, uh, based in Charleston, based in Charleston at the time. This article from uh, WNIN, Tri-State Public Media, that uh, did this story, Cass Harrington, May of 2015. Um, she does mention how Charles Medley is obviously on the complete other side of this table, other side of this coin, master distiller whose family has been producing bourbon there in Owensboro for eight generations and who has a test tube of his family's live yeast in his home refrigerator for extra insurance. Yeah. That's dope. So it was really a crazy meeting of of young and old, new and old, but that didn't last. That deal actually kind of fizzled out and uh, nothing really came of it. And my guess is it was because of that man sitting at the, the other side of the table with the test tube of live yeast in his refrigerator who uh, eventually probably became dubious yeah, of this. You imagine him just like flipping out on him, like. Let's hear your impersonation. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, you hippies! <laughs> Can't manufacture a time in a barrel, boys. Can't manufacture that okay. shit. You just gotta fucking wait for it. All right, and that's what I'm gonna continue to do. Now get out of my house. <laughs> yeah, well, bespoken is like they don't give a fuck. They want to like get it done, get it out, get it drinking as fast before the world fucking ends. Yeah, they're like, we got Derek Jeter. What do you what do you want us to what do you want us to say? Well, I look forward to trying some, I suppose. But yeah, I'm dubious as well. Yeah. It might taste good. Like if I hadn't had amazing whiskey before and wanted it re you know, like what do you want? You want like that stuff recreated or do you want to taste something new anyway? Pretty interesting. Mike, you ever you ever drink wine in the dark? That would be rare, but I'm sure I have. Like wine in the club. Maybe some candles. Does that count? Sure. Especially this time of year. I mean, like, what if you, what if you blew yeah. out the candle? I suppose so. No one's looking; they can't see you. But uh, there's a Slovenian wine producer who is just this year releasing a wine that was made in complete darkness. Spooky. Pretty cool. 100% Chardonnay, harvested at night. Night vision goggles. No shit. I love it. This is guy going. Yeah, it's going. Uh, like it's destemmed in a lightless uh, cellar. Oh, underground cave and 2000 bottles are going to be available uh this year now the gorici line is uh branded untouched by light the family that is producing it has been making wine since the uh 1850s they're deep in the game they're producing mm. this wine in the original underground caves that their company was founded upon and going by actual uh scientific proof they believe that UV lighting, even from fluorescent lighting, artificial lighting indoors, can spoil a bright uh, floral and fruity bouquet. Wow. So, once again, the 100% Chardonnay will be sparkling. Dude, Slovenian wine is great. I've had some amazing ones. They're, they're um, incredible um, pictures that I've seen. Never haven't been there. But they're they're sloping vineyards, and their wine country. I'm dying to get out there someday. There are some amazing. Yeah, it's a um, perfect sort of. It's a perfect duo trip. Yeah, like Italy, Slovenia, and Greece. If you want to go on a wine vacation, I think that's like pretty solid one. 
the vino is uh, is harvested at about uh, 200 meters above sea level. It's aged on leaves for about 36 months. Disgorged earlier this year and uh, should be available at no time in the United States anytime soon. And Glenn Danzig is the winemaker? Isn't he doing something in spirits right now? I feel like he's probably making some wine or making something really dark and disturbing. He should come out with like some like bloodline, like Glenn Danzig blood sausage. If I was, a, yeah, find it in the a, aisle right next to Jimmy like Dean, a, like a neighbor of his and a butcher. I would try to try to get an angle on him that way, uh, or you know, like if he was our neighbor. Or like trolling yeah, them. It would, it would be, be amazing to be neighbors with them. We'd either be really close friends um, or uh, we wouldn't get along. We'd argue a lot. Well, this uh, next portion of the program right here on Liquid Gold Booze News, the season finale, is brought to you by Glen Danzig Blood Sausage. From the mud comes the blood. Find it in the aisle right next to Jimmy Dean. Wow, that's fucking good. <laughs> Back dude. to the program. Holy shit. <laughs> From the farm's mud to his blood. Find it next to Jimmy Dean. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what else you got? Yeah, I got Anything a else? story, but uh Oh boy. Are you familiar with the uh, the cocktail staple in New York City called Dante? One of my oh, favorite yeah. names for a cocktail bar. We talked about it on the uh, Lost right. episode. Home of the Garibaldi. Well, they're about to be uh, distributing cocktails in a can through Five Drinks Company, probably just to keep in business, uh, ma- making making folks think creatively and trying to find a side hustle. They partnered with a uh, local beverage company to distribute canned cocktails. Uh, they're coming out with two cocktails to begin with. One is a summer spritz, another being an Americano, also on subject. Old subject, recent subject. Yeah. That'll uh, be pretty cool, like a four-pack. It's a four-pack for 15 bucks. Dope price point. Nice. Um, portable cocktails are a thing. Growing industry. It's getting big. It's starting to be a, a major thing. You're starting to see canned Negronis, which is kind of amazing going back to our Negroni episode, how we talked about that glass bottle Campari yeah, soda. That'll be They'll be celebrating 100 years with that same Cubist design. They haven't changed the bottle at all. It's incredible. Um, they'll be sell- what do we say? The hundredth anniversary will be 2028. Yeah, so, so it's all coming back around. Yeah. Uh, the the actual uh, canned cocktail industry uh, is projected to hit somewhere around 20 billion dollars this year worldwide. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a lot. But uh, within the next 10 years, it should peak around 200 million. So. Expected to expand tenfold because everyone's all weird and comfortable about quarantining. They just rather like sit in the window like I do and have a drink and watch my neighbors while they're mowing their lawn. Yeah. First canned cocktails, good canned Negronis, then our next planet where we're going to live. Well, I hope it works out for them. Um, They do great work and uh, they've made some incredible cocktails that. You know, I've enjoyed kind of recreating. So, uh, yeah, best of luck to them and um, everybody trying to make it through this. We will uh, be seeing you in uh, season three coming yeah, up. Season three. Well, it's been good finally getting uh, getting to ciders, though, man. 
I feel like I learned a lot. Did I ever tell you my apple cider poem that I wrote? I've heard rumors about this poem. That's amazing. Are you going to share? I can. Let's hear it. She was dressed in pink. She grabbed her drink. Right beside her. Beside her lighter. There was a spider in her apple cider. She tried to burn the spider with her lighter, but the spider was a fighter. Thank you. That's really good. Thanks, man. I love it. Are you going to share more uh, poetry in season three? I'll try to. All right. Thanks so much to Jessica Backus of Delaney Oyster House. Thank you so much to Chris Haston of C. Haston Ciders. Thanks to producer Michael Eads for another great season right here on We Own This Town, weownthistown.net. Thanks to T-Rex, Upright T-Rex Music for the tunes. Jess Matchin for the Liquid Gold logo, as well as a lot of the cool artwork that she's doing. She will be working on the Liquid Gold book with us that we are hard at work on now. And uh, that will be out in fall of 2021. So that's super exciting. Lots to come here on Liquid Gold. We are going to kick things off season three talking about coffee. So that'll be in just a few weeks here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. My name's Mike Wolf. For my partner, Kenneth Dedman, we'll see you next time right here on Liquid Gold. Cheers, everybody. All right, now, later, Tater.